Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the September 30th, 2012 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. It's the podcast devoted to the discussion of news and politics from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy, Objectivism. I'm your host, Amy Peekoff, and today I have for you an interview with Don Watkins. He's a fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute and also, more significantly for our purposes, co-author with Yaron Brook of the book Free Market Revolution, how Ayn Rand's Ideas Can End Big Government. If you haven't gotten the book yet, shame on you. Uh, you can still pick it up for a great price at Amazon. I posted a link in the chat room. You could also find a link at my blog at don'tletitgo.com. Uh, you could also find it on Don's blog, which is capitalism.aynrand.org. Don, thanks for joining us today. How are you? Great. My pleasure. Excellent. So, uh, those of you who are attending live could call in or ask a question if, if Don's game for answering those. The phone number is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. Or as I said, go ahead and post them in the chat room. We've got some people hanging out there already. I've got plenty of questions to keep Don busy. But if there is something that you also want to ask, let me know. Uh, Don, I understand the book was released on September 18th. And I've heard that it's already doing quite well on some of the bestseller lists. Is that right? Yeah, we've made uh, quite a few of them. USA Today, uh, Publishers Week Weekly, and uh, we were number four on the Washington Post uh, um, new nonfiction list. So it's uh, off to a good start, and hopefully we'll be able to keep that up. That is excellent. I mean, congratulations in general for finishing a book and an important book that I think could have a great influence, which I hope will have a great influence, especially given what we all learned by reading this book. We we need something like this to, to try and have some influence in, in the culture. But not just that, with the success. I'm hoping that its appearance on the charts is going to get even more people interested in reading it and not only help your success with the book, but help us all in, in the long run. Now, in terms of starting into the interview, there are some questions that we can ask just from unpacking the title of the book a bit, and that's going to give people an idea of the overall thesis of your book. But one thing that you find striking from the very beginning, you see right on page three when you talk about what do you mean by free market revolution. You know, people talk about revolutions. They talk about going out the streets and doing things and overthrowing governments and such. And on page three, you say that the free market revolution is in your you know, goal, a revolution in the way that people think, a way that they think about markets. And you say, and it's also about the central activity that takes place on markets, which is the self-interested pursuit of profit. So a revolution in the way people think is already a bit different than most people typically think about revolutions. But you, you of course, say it's not just an end in itself. It's because you believe that the change in the way people think is necessary to achieve the overall goal of any big, big government. Is that right? 
Yeah, let me give you an analogy um, without making a comparison in scale. Uh, the, the American Revolution, um, I think it was Jefferson who commented on, uh, or perhaps it was Adams, that this, it, it was primarily a revolution in thinking. It was a, the, the battle for independence was one kind of the final summary, but of a change in the way that Americans thought. They thought about themselves and they thought about government. And similarly, what we view is that in order to have a real change in what our government is doing, say, the kind of change that the Tea Parties have been advocating. There first has to be change in our ideas, and our ideas at a very deep level. The, the, the very framework in which we think about political economic issues, and as we argue in the book, fundamentally the way we think about morality, there has to be a real shift if there's going to be an existential change. And the, the, what we're really saying is that the, the mainstream, what we have today is not a deviation from the mainstream. It's not that o uh, Obama's policies, for instance, are somehow com fundamentally inconsistent with what's been happening over the last uh, decade, let alone 50 to 100 years. It's a continuation of that same trend. And so long as you keep the intellectual mainstream, the values, the ideas, the understanding of government that is completely widespread today, so long as you keep that, there's no such thing as rolling back government. You can tinker with it at right. the edges. Um, you, can, you can take a step back here and there, but you can't fundamentally change the direction, and that's what we want to do. We want to change the direction of this country. Right, and, and I would say that anybody who listens to this show is going to agree at least insofar as they do want smaller government, right, and they want to at least tinker with some of those edges. They probably want to do a lot more than that. But in the book, you argue that the proper goal, and again, the proper goal is not something that you say we can achieve instantaneously because we didn't get where we are very quickly either. But nonetheless, the explicitly stated goal that we have to work towards is more radical than just this tinkering at the edges or even more radical than significantly smaller government. What we need, you say, is a system of pure laissez-faire capitalism. And my first question is, is why? Why do we have to reduce the scope of government all the way back to a pure laissez-faire capitalist government, why isn't it good enough to say that we'll just substantially decrease the scope of government activities relative to its current state? Well, you have to ask good enough for what? I mean, good enough, let me put it slightly differently. So I've I mentioned the American Revolution. The, the founding fathers were idealists. They were, when they were under the thumb of Britain, they were still under the thumb of the freest government in the world, probably in history in many ways. Their view was not, hey, that's pretty good, let's settle for it. It was they saw a possibility to create a better society, to create a government that was, in effect, an ideal. And so they, they, they acted. They said it could, things are, um, certainly they were worried about moving towards tyranny. It was more that they saw we could make things so much better. And so a lot of our focus is, yeah, I mean, you could take a step back here or there. You could avoid disaster. We don't, it's not laissez-faire or an entitlement crisis in the next 10 years. But that if you're going to ask what kind of government should we have, what we should have morally and economically and politically is a, a fully free society. But there is, there is an issue of, in the long run, you really do face an either-or choice of pure capitalism or pure statism. 
Right. And the basic issue is because you face a basic moral choice. The, the question, and this is what we bring up in the book, wh- why, what kind of political system should you have rests on a, question, a, a prior question about morality. About, and basically the, the real choice that we face is, does the individual have a right to his own life, the right to exist for his own sake, or is he a puppet to some others, whether it's God, the tribal leader, society, the dictator, the proletariat? Is it the individual come, does the individual come first, or does, is he a pawn of the group? And that's the basic choice you face. And Ayn Rand is consistent. She is, says, no, the individual has a right to exist for his own sake. And if you believe that, then you have to endorse laissez-faire. You have to endorse a full separation between state and economics. That any kind of halfway measure, what that really says is, no, society owns you, the, the government owns you, and maybe it will give you a certain amount of latitude for now, but you're fundamentally under its thumb. And so the, you, you do face an either-or cho- either choice in the long term. And the, the, but in the short term, the focus, um, the, the, the fact is that we've, had, we've seen these attempts to try to come up with short-term patches, short-term mm-hmm. solutions, uh, you know, kind of a halfway measures. But they don't work, and they don't work because of this idea of morality. And the way you can think about it is that any government policy it counts on a certain justification. So if a person says, look, I don't want to go all the way to laissez-faire. We need to have some amount of regulation and some amount of wealth redistribution. They don't just say that, right? They offer some sort of reason. Well, it's that reason, if you embrace it, that's going to determine the ultimate scale of the policies, not what that particular person thinks is a good amount. So if you say, for instance, that a person's need entitles him to help from others, then it doesn't matter that you yourself think, well, but, of course, we're only talking about small amounts of need, a small amount of wealth redistribution. You've, you've accepted a principle, and over time what that means is that more and more needs will lead to more and more entitlements to the point today where, uh, you know, close to 50% of a person's income is going to the government for these programs. Right, right. And this leads into the, the next question, and again, just unpacking the title of the book, Free Market Revolution, How Ayn Rand's Ideas Can End Big Government. Why is it that it's Ayn Rand's ideas in particular that are essential to achieving this goal? Maybe, you know, you like Ayn Rand, you're just biased, Don, you know. Won't, won't other <laughs> ideas work, right? I mean, after all, there are a number of writers out there, they have books and articles and et cetera, and they're trying to defend capitalism. Ayn Rand's not the only one who tries to do it. So why, why her ideas? Well, there's no question that there's a lot of uh, important thinkers who've contributed to our understanding of capitalism, and there's a lot of important principles about history, about economics, about psychology even, um, and a whole, about politics, about law, that you need to understand and that need to be understood in a culture in order to move towards freedom. So the point is not that Ayn Rand's ideas in a vacuum are somehow the only relevant thing. But there's a real question in history. Why was it that we came so close in America towards a fully free capitalist society, and why was it lost? And in the introduction to her book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, um, Ayn Rand talks about that capitalism was being destroyed without people even knowing what it was, without knowing its history, without knowing the principles that made it operate. And why did that, why did that happen? Why was it able to a whole period of mankind's life and a whole system that really was 
I mean, it, it, in, it, historically, nothing else came close to bettering human life. How is it possible that that was lost? And she says, and she argues, and I think persuasively, that it was because there was no philosophy of capitalism. Philosophy is not just another science. It's not just another uh, um, issue. It's not just on the same level as, say, something like economics. It's the science of fundamentals. It's the science that is connecting the basic ideas that connect all our knowledge. And so it's a very, very powerful force. And so if you go wrong philosophically, you're going to go wrong in a whole lot of areas. And so what happened historically is that philosophy, the philosophy for capitalism and more broadly for freedom was not there. We had the politics of freedom thanks to the founding fathers and Locke, but there was no philosophy of freedom. And as a result, then even though the uh, world in front of people's faces was proving the superiority of capitalism, they could not see it. They could not interpret what was going on in front of their faces. And then the intellectuals who shared a philosophy antithetical to capitalism, the ones whose job it was to put all of that in perspective and to tell people what to make of this new phenomenon of industrialization and how to think about individual rights and how they apply to all the issues of the day to uh, you know, different legal questions, instead of doing their job of clarifying things, they were doing the job of trying to obfuscate things. And the result was that very quickly capitalism ended up completely misunderstood, and today it barely registers any real content in a person's mind. And so the, the real issue is how do you fix that? Well, to fix a problem caused by a lack of a philosophy, you need a philosophy. And Ayn Rand is the only philosopher uh, who really has what I think is a valid uh, philosophy uh, broadly, but also um, in this context, philosophy of capitalism. Now, in, in particular, when you're talking about ending big government, what are the primary ideas that you draw from Rand that are essential for people to understand that is going to achieve this revolution in the way that they think about the self-interested pursuit of profit? What is it that people need to understand? I mean, you said on the, on the one hand, they don't even understand capitalism. And in the book, you do uh, describe how capitalism actually operates, what it, you know, what, what it actually means. But you also talk about the philosophical issues in a very nice, essentialized way. And just to give the you know the listeners some idea of you know what are what are the ideas that you think are so essential in order to achieve this goal of getting rid of the big government, the welfare state. Yeah, yeah. So um, if you think about you know I, mean, I said philosophy in general, we need a philosophy of capitalism. But there's really a crucial philosophic issue that I think really has led to the destruction of economic freedom, and that we really need to get clear on if we want move people to embrace economic freedom. And so if the basic phenomenon that has led people to condemn capitalism is the fact that capitalism is filled with, you know, you, you quoted the line, the self-interested pursuit of profit, mm -hmm. that, that's really the core activity that takes place in a market. It's, it's the, the, and that activity is so misunderstood and improperly evaluated that the real core of what we're doing in the book is saying, People have a wrong view of what self-interest is. If they had a right view, they would tend to value it. Most people, I think, would value it if they understood it. And if they saw then that that's what existed on a free market, let, let me make it a little more concrete. 
the conventional view of self-interest is that it's we all have this kind of you know inborn drive to do what feels good, and it's just kind of you know uh, if we don't control that, then we're going to run rampant and often, if not always, ultimately harm other people, make other people's lives off worse, uh, worse off. On the other hand, you know, we can if we clamp down on our self-interest, we can rise above it and be we can be a little selfless. We can put them above us. We can put you know, larger spiritual concerns above our innate material drives. Now, and that capitalism is dangerous precisely because it unleashes this destructive self-interest, and it's immoral because it doesn't force us to conform to the dictates of this higher selflessness. If that's your view, and that is most people's view in one form or another, um, it, you, there's no way that you're going to end up saying, yes, we need to be free to pursue our economic well-being without controls. On the other hand, if what you realize is that that is a complete misunderstanding of self-interest, that self-interest is, and this is what we argue in the book, that a real understanding is it's being concerned with what genuinely promotes your well-being over the course of a lifetime, that mm-hmm. it is what Ayn Rand called rational self-interest, and that that involves living by reason, dealing with other people through win-win trade, and that that is what a free market actually unleashes and rewards, if that's your view, then it's, uh, then that goes a long way to convincing a person that, oh, wow, maybe markets are a pretty good thing. I mean, if it's a situation where, to the extent that we exercise virtues, we can prosper and be happy and it doesn't come at other people's expense, that that's potentially very good. But, I mean... I, I've explained it now at a very high level, but you really have to take it, and we try to take it in the book on concrete issues. How does self-interest play out in uh, entitlements? How does it play out in the business context? How does it play out in the context of large-scale corporations? How does it work out in history in terms of people being poor and people being rich? You really have to work through it at that level and see, oh, this is what self-interest means and leads to, not the kind of disasters we've con- uh, traditionally been taught. But it's really about self-interest and the economic area, arena in particular, which is the profit motive. Right. And and I think that is the core idea. And one concrete that I liked that you used in the book as a way to demonstrate how people misunderstand what selfishness actually is properly is the juxtaposing of Steve Jobs and Bernie Madoff and saying, look, everybody in the culture thinks that both of these guys are quote-unquote selfish, right? And and what this reveals, because Bernie Madoff and Steve Jobs are, you know, so, so diametrically different, it, it demonstrates that there is a, a misunderstanding among the general population about this term selfishness. Um, I was wondering if you could describe the nature of people's misunderstanding about what selfishness is. Yeah, no, I'm glad you asked that because this is really, I think, a, a core part of what we're doing in the book. Um, well, let me back up a little bit. One, you know, Ayn Rand comes out and she talks about selfishness in this way that sounds very positive, um, and we're traditionally taught that it's very negative. And it, it, that can be misunderstood, and she's often criticized in two wrong ways. So one way basically treats it that Ayn Rand points to the same phenomenon that everybody else is talking about, and whereas everybody else says it's bad, she just waves a wand and says, no, it's good. Mm-hmm. Now, if you, you know, saw somebody punching his mother in the teeth and everybody else said it's bad and you said, no, it's good, you're not going to be too convincing. I don't think you're going to get an audience of millions. 
So that's not what she's doing. She's not just arbitrarily, you know, blessing something, nor is she arbitrarily redefining the word. She's not just saying, I have a different, weird version of the definition of selfishness. What she's saying is that our conventional understanding of selfishness is wrong. It doesn't make any sense. This idea that selfishness is just doing whatever you feel like doing uh, at other people's expense and that it, it covers people from uh, like Bernie Madoff or Steve Jobs or other businessmen. She goes, that at all, that, that, it, it doesn't make any sense. You're grouping together two radically different things under the same word, under the same idea. And that's what she called a package deal. And to put it most simply, there's a great story from somebody who I'm not fond of at all, uh, Bill Buckley, where he says, you know, you can't take a guy who pushes an old lady in front of a bus and a different guy who pushes an old lady out of the way of a bus and say, hey, those are both guys who like to push old ladies around. There's a radical difference between those two kinds of activities, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what a package deal does. It takes something that's completely different but superficially similar and puts it together. And so selfish, it puts together Bernie Madoff because he allegedly is after what he wants, and it puts together Steve Jobs because he's allegedly after what he wants, even though Bernie Madoff is a guy who didn't create anything, who didn't actually think about what was going to achieve his long-term happiness, who ended up miserable by his own admission, says he was miserable while he was uh, involved in his con, said he's miserable now that he's now in, uh, now that he's in jail, it's putting him in the same category and saying, yeah, he, he, he actually is selfish in the same way that a Steve Jobs is selfish. Whereas what did Steve Jobs do? He created something very valuable. He made other people incredibly better off in the process of making himself better off. And at least in the business world, it achieved a very profound kind of enjoyment in his work. But that is very different. And what Ayn Rand says is that, yes, a Steve Jobs is, in that sense, selfish. He's thinking about what's actually good for him and pursuing it rationally. A Bernie Madoff is not giving any thought at all to what's good for him, and as a result, he's not actually achieving his welfare. And so you can't call that self-interest. You, it, it's self-destructive. It's not that he's being an altruist. Uh, he's not you know, being selfless in the sense of trying to achieve the welfare of others. He's not thinking about those issues and acting by emotion, and as a result, he achieves self-destruction. So I mean, you can you can think about it. This is a particularly for people who have read Ayn Rand. There's a tendency to think, well, you have to group when you're talking about selfishness versus what she would refer to as altruism, of sacrificing for others. Those are not um, they don't class. Not everybody falls under one of those categories. Um, it's not true that everybody's either selfish or an altruist. It's a real right. achievement to be to come under the heading of a code of morality. It means you've really thought and made a conscious decision. I want to live this kind of life. And she says, for selfishness, you're dealing only with the thinkers who really think about what's good for them. A person who doesn't think about it, they they are not yet, they haven't risen to the level of being either selfish or altruistic. Right. And one of the things that disappointed me about Steve Jobs is that with respect to some parts of his life, particularly his health, I don't feel, you know, based on my reading of his biography, that he gave enough thought to what was required for him to be selfish about his health as he was in his work. And that was one of the very tragic things about him. I mean, he was excellent in so many ways. And then when you read about how he managed his diet and his health, it was so disappointing. So, 
Yeah, I mean, it's it, and this is a larger phenomenon. It's, so it's part of the point of uh, Ayn Rand would refer to compartmentalization, and she would. I mean, this is a widespread phenomenon of people being better in one realm than another. And so part of what ethics is giving you, and the reason we need it as a science, she says, you know, there's a conventional view that, view that being selfish is easy, right? Again, it's just doing whatever you feel like doing. And she said, no, it, actually being selfish is hard because you have to keep that long-term view. You have to think about every realm of your life. And so it's a very rare achievement for somebody to really be selfish in her sense, to really achieve concern for himself as a goal. And that's why we can use Steve Jobs as an example in that kind of delimited way. But even there, it's somebody who clearly, uh, I think, I agree with you from my assessment, didn't take that same thoughtful, rational, principled approach that you would see in business and apply it in every, in every arena of his life. And so if even a person like Steve Jobs, who I think is you know, one of history's uh, great, uh, great heroes, great saints in many ways, um, if even he does not deserve the title of selfish, the idea that a person who completely destroys his life and life of lives of everyone around him, like Madoff, the idea that he's selfish is just clearly wrong. Right, right. Now we do have a call here, so we're going to go ahead and see if we can take a question. Hi, who's this? Hi, Amy. It's Debbie. Hi, Debbie. Do you have a question for Don? I do. Yes. Don, um, Don, are you just... able? Don, are you able to hear Debbie? Uh, loud and clear. Excellent. Okay, go ahead, Debbie. Great. So, first of all, I really am enjoying the book. So, uh, and congratulations on making the bestseller list. Oh, thank you. But my question, yeah, sure. My question is, um, it has to do with Gary Johnson. I know we have a lot of, uh, we're trying to sort of do an intervention and stop people from voting for him. And I'm just curious what you think about his potential ability to use the bully pulpit uh, as, as if he were elected president, which, I, you know, I don't think he will be. But if he could be, do you, do you think he has a lot of potential to articulate and defend capitalist ideals in any really meaningful way? Uh, as a defender of capitalism, and and also, how do you think that compares to the possibility of those ideas being articulated with uh, Romney and Paul Ryan specifically uh, in the White House? Okay, I think well, that's a good question, Debbie. Let me. I'm going I'm to put Debbie on hold uh, here just so that we don't have as much interference with the sound. Go ahead, Don. Sure. Um, so you know the the standard disclaimer. I can't comment on politicians uh, in, in too much depth and too much specificity because I'm representing the Einhorn Institute, which is a nonprofit that's restricted in that way. But I can say a couple things just about how to think about the role of politicians. Politicians do not make good educators. They can amplify a message. So there is a, you know, there's a conventional leftist egalitarian message, and Obama can really bring that to the fore. He can push it into the debate. Um, the, the, the same thing, I think, on the other side. So they, they, they can be message amplifiers. So it's not that a bully pulpit is completely meaningful. But in an election, certainly that never happens. I mean, Ayn Rand used to stress, an election is not an education campaign. In an election, you are cashing in on the ideas and values that people actually hold by saying, I, I represent your ideas and values. I'm going to enact your ideas and values. So if you're trying to change people's ideas and values, which to be a pro take a pro-capitalist position you have to do, then uh, an election is probably the worst time to do it, particularly today when all you get is a soundbite. And the fact is that 
something as controversial as capitalism or free market policies, they do not sound good in sound bites. Um, you, can, you can get a good sound bite here and there, but I mean, the, take somebody who's out of the race so I can say more about uh, Ron Paul. There's a lot I don't like about Ron Paul, but one thing in particular that I thought was atrocious and destructive was the fact that he was seen to represent the pro-capitalist side, and in the debates, if you'll recall, he was asked, so what do we do, what, what do, we do about, you know, there's a woman who can't afford a surgery, do we let her die? He had no answer. Now, if you can't answer that, you're doing a huge disservice to your side. But the fact is there, that you could give a better 20-second answer than he gave. But there's no real clarifying answer to those kinds of questions in 20 seconds. So education has to be done outside of politics, and politics has to cash in on that. That, that said, I actually don't know anything about Gary Johnson in particular. Uh, I, I don't know whether he's a good advocate. I don't know whether such a person could use the, the bully pulpit. Um, there, there's a real – I think it's just – the more important part is to remember that there's other bully pulpits out there that are extremely powerful and that don't require giving people of mixed premises political power. Um, but – I mean, again, as you indicated in your question, it's not really a real scenario. So whether or not he would be good with the bully pulpit would have no bearing on whether to vote for him because that's kind of like asking, would I be able to use the presidential pulpit very well? Yeah, but nobody would vote for me, so it's not really not, – not too useful. Yeah, I mean, my impression is that not only would people not vote for Gary Johnson, but he's far from perfect, and you could do – Don, you could do a – vastly, vastly better job than Gary Johnson of using the bully pulpit uh, to spread ideas. So, Deborah, I'm going to uh, give you a quick chance if you have a, a follow-up, but that otherwise we have another caller that I'm going to allow to ask a question to. Do you have any quick follow-up? Just, uh, you know, it's too bad, Don, because I'd be happy to vote for you. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we all would be thrilled to uh, to vote for Don. Well, thanks for calling in, Deborah. I'm going to go ahead and take another caller here. Hello, who's this? Do you have a question for Don? Am I on, Bob, here? Hi, Bob. Hello? Do you have a Hi, do you have a question for Don? Yes, I, I was glad that you uh, are including uh, Ayn Rand's, uh, we have to, in regards to defending capitalism, the selfish ethics. But the question I have to you is, uh, besides living consciously with this ethics, how many people really uh, are able to uh, live that way given their upbringing? Is that possibility even though they've been brought up differently? Okay, let's let Don take a stab at that. What do you think, Don? Oh, I think absolutely. So be, pursuing your self-interest, abiding by principles that are going to guide you in the pursuit of your self-interest, This uh, ideas are not innate and, not, and ideas are not kind of drilled into our head in a way that we can't get rid of them. You might be able to think of extreme cases where, in effect, if you lock some kid in the room from the time he was born and gave him nothing but communist propaganda, you know, it's hard to imagine anything being, you know, him being able to develop. But setting aside, like, weird extreme cases, anybody with a functioning mind who, you know, lives in the world is able, I think, um, if they have a minimal level of IQ, to, to understand these ideas and implement them in their own life if they see that they're true. Uh, there's nothing inherent in the fact that a person is brought up with wrong ideas that prevents him from understanding true ideas. And I think the, the clear example of that is the fact that so many people do agree with Ayn Rand's ideas 
and very few, although it's becoming more and more, I guess, today, uh, uh, very few people are raised with these ideas. Right. And actually, uh, this is relevant to one question that I was going to ask you because I've spoken with Yaron Brook on this show a couple times, and I know his history that he's talked about several times, which is that he was the socialist growing up. And then, of course, he changed his mind after he was exposed to Ayn Rand's ideas. So the fact that he was brought up whatever way he was and, uh, you know, internalized those socialist ideas didn't affect him. I was going to ask you what your personal history was. Yeah, mine's actually a lot less interesting because, I mean, I discovered Ayn Rand when I was um, 15 years old. I had just become, in effect, philosophically conscious. And so for me, um, I neither had that kind of, well, this is all something I've believed all my life, nor that kind of this is a revelation feeling when I read her. I just said, well, yeah, this makes sense. And, you know, that was it. Uh, So, you know, I've been nominally Christian before, but I I didn't really agree with it. Um, I actually became an atheist a year earlier before I found Ayn Rand. And, uh, but I I was always on a pro-reason premise, but, um, yeah, I mean, it was just, I, I read her ideas and she was so clarifying about, you know, these big questions in life both in terms of how we should think about the question and then what the answer is to those questions that, I mean, for me, it was almost from day one. Yeah, this is clearly true. And then as I got older, I realized, well, it's it's much more complicated. You know, it wasn't as simple as I thought it was for her to even reach those answers. Um, But yeah, I still have the same attitude as I did when I was 15, which is how clarifying. Right, right. And for me, I read it at about 17, and I think I had a, a similar sort of experience because at least, you know, back then we didn't think about politics that much when we were young. We were more interested in ethics. You read The Fountainhead, and if your primary interest is in ethics as a teenager, it definitely makes a lot of sense to you. At least that was my particular history. Um, now, here are some different questions that we have here in the chat room people and then actually this one's from deborah again who was just on the phone she says uh, did you call into the leonard peakoff show and win a tie-in contest i heard that i think is that right yeah so i um i was a bit of a precocious kid like i said i you know i discovered i ran at 15 and uh i did in fact um, leonard peakoff used to have a radio show and he would have these contests where he would give three kind of news examples, things that were going on in the world that didn't seem related, but he would ask you, can you find what relates them? Because he's, in effect, teaching you philosophic thinking. Philosophic thinking, you're always looking for that non-obvious integrating factor that underlies a whole bunch of seemingly different, disparate, concrete facts or events. And I did. I happened to call in and win the contest, and uh, he asked me with some suspicion because I'd gotten the answer so fast, um, are you some objectivist eminence? And I decided, well, I would not answer that directly. I would just tell him, no, I am 16. <laughs> and so the, it was supposed to be self-evident that at 16 you could not be an objectivist eminence. Uh, you know, I, I used to work for that show, so that was a, a lot of fun all the time. And who knows whether I had any input in the particular tying contest. But as I recall, what he would do is he'd have – the front page of the New York Times, and he'd see three different stories and then get an inspiration for the next tie-in contest in terms of relating the topics of the three different stories. Let's see what else we have here in the chat room. I've got Zach. Now, Zach is 
talking about, well, what are you going to do in, in your next book? And I actually did have a question. Do you, have, you even have any ideas about what your next book will be? I have quite a few ideas too early to talk about now, but um, I mean, I can just say generally, I think that there's definitely more stuff I want to do on Ayn Rand at kind of a broad level uh, about her ideas. But I think um, one, one of the points about our book in terms of thinking about the purpose, it is aimed at the Tea Party reader. It's aimed at, you know, the, the average American who um, is unhappy with the trend of today and wants to fight it. But it's also aimed at providing a framework in which the people who I think are really going to affect those changes long term can, can start from. And, and what I mean there is that if you look at how the left transformed America from a basically free society into today's regulatory entitlement state, they didn't do it so much by just arguing at a broad level, we need to get rid of all this capitalism and have more state control. They had crusaders who went into issue after issue, field after field, whether it was education, law, uh, politics, economics, all sorts of these fields they would go into and they would transform it by really focusing on rethinking how a certain field is conducted, the ideas that dominate a field. But what made them so effective, one thing, was that they had an idealistic philosophy on their side. Now, their philosophy was wrong and actually has corrupt ideals from our perspective, but they were idealists and that made them very powerful. What we need today, I think, capitalism needs idealists. We need people to go in to issue after issue, field after field, and transform it to a pro-capitalist approach, or more broadly, a rational approach. And that, but you need a framework for that. And so our book is for, uh, you know, at least on the political level, trying to give the people who are in these fields and who are going to go into these fields, give them that framework. Um, so going forward, I actually want to focus more on a specific field. Um, I'm, I'm Looking right now, my plan is to start doing more education policy um, over the next year or two. But everything's still a little up in the air. You know, we'll see once we come down from how this book does. Um, we'll figure something out. Right, and ed education policy is one of the big items that you do mention concretely in the book that that needs to be tackled along with entitlements and and, uh, and others. Um, in you know the question that we did get in the chat room from a regular listener named Zach had to do with that with fleshing out what would have to be done in specific fields, giving concretes you know in terms of the free market alternatives and and how to get there. And he was wondering whether ARI plans to to lay this out. My understanding is that different intellectuals at ARI will probably specialize in different areas and go ahead and, and spell how, that out. But it is it, it's premature until such time as we have achieved the overall educational goal of getting people to understand that the self-interested pursuit of profit is good and that the free market is the way to implement a system in which the self-interested pursuit of profit is allowed to, to flourish. So until we're there, getting too, too specific, you know, you, there are some suggestions that you give, particularly with healthcare in the book, but getting more specific than that at this point is, is sort of premature as well, right? Well, I would put it a little bit differently. I mean, in a certain way, until the culture moves, I don't think you're going to be too successful in, in a given field. But part of how I think the culture will move is through individual fields. Okay, so I think, okay. For instance, I think, for instance, that, um, you know, at the, at the Institute, we have Alain Giorno focusing on foreign policy. Uh, and he's focused really on the issue of 
self-interest and individual rights as the, as the framework for a, a proper foreign policy. Um, I think that that is one way in which people are going to start to think about individual rights is because they're going to be evaluating just on a concrete level. Here's this guy, Alon Giorno, who's putting forward a foreign policy recommendations that makes a lot more sense than the kind of disaster we've been engaged in now. So, and then they'll start to think, oh, because well, he's using this framework. So I think it works both ways. That's why I think you have to make the broad argument, which is what our book is doing uh, now, uh, about you know the broad approach of individual rights as the integrator of all these different fields uh, of self-interest as a moral uh, stance that's going to color how you think of a whole range of economic and political issues. But I think it's also going to be people going into individual fields and really changing them in effect from the ground up. I think both of those work at the same time. Both of them are a form of educating people. And there's in a certain way can be in some fields, I think, even greater potential to to move ahead um, uh, on the concrete than to start, you know, with the most abstract educational side of things. But you need both. So, yeah, so so basically you're saying that my abstruse uh, dissertation about the right to privacy might actually help something in the practical world and not just be a pie in the sky for someday. No, absolutely. And, and I mean, <laughs> again, it's, I mean, take a real-life example. I mean, you, you, um, you, you, of course, I assume, and I think I learned this from you, the right to privacy came from certain judges who wanted to change the way we thought about law. And right. the, it, it was really this handful of judges who completely changed, it, in many ways, the approach of law during the, the 20th century. And, uh, you know, privacy is one important example. So I think the, the same thing is going to happen in reverse, just as introducing the right to privacy was, in a certain way, a concrete event, right? It was, was, wasn't it one paper that really was the fountainhead yeah, of Yeah, yeah, there, there, was, there was a law review article in 1890, fittingly enough, of course, 1890 being the year of Sherman Antitrust as well. But in essence, it became part of the progressive movement, which focused on, uh, you know, deflating and, uh, you know, basically getting rid of the right to property and the freedom of contract. And whereas privacy, I think, should be protected through those things, instead, the judges went ahead and said, let's have a freestanding right to privacy, and then we can go ahead and continue to destroy property and contract, and people won't get so upset about it. That's my theory anyway. So, Yeah, yeah and so it, 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 and that's actually really how these things have proceeded in field after field after field, is there's these people who do something now that's pretty abstract, but still relatively concrete when you, when you compare it to somebody who says, "Hey, we need you know socialism, or we need to get rid of capitalism, or something." Um, and that I think absolutely what we'll see is more and more people will have to will start you know having things like important papers or books on things like the right to privacy or on you know an approach to uh, the uh, Palestinian question and that will inject a certain approach in the culture. And I I think, you know, you had uh, Dr. Peikoff on as your guest talking about his BIM book. And one of the points he makes there is that cultural change happens very largely through its cultural products, through things like specific books, specific approaches to education, specific forms of literature. And I I think this is another example of how abstract ideas influence a culture through the concrete. And so, our book, you know, we're trying to tackle it at a high level. In part, it's to give ammunition to the people who are going to do that concrete work. 
Right. Okay. Excellent. Now, in the book, uh, I like the fact that you have chapters on both moral theory and economic theory because it's obviously we talked about why it's it's necessary for people to understand the moral point to to understand what selfishness is and why it's good. But it's also necessary for people to understand how markets actually work, how the free market works, and how the free market uh, allows people to behave properly, you know, acting in rational self-interest. So with respect to each of those topics, how did you decide what essentials to focus on? Some things that people are commenting on here in the chat room is that they like the level on which the book was written. You know, that you've got enough detail so that you don't have things completely floating. At the same time, you don't drown people in so much that they can't absorb the overall point. And I, and I think in both the chapters on morality and on economic theory, you chose, you know, three three or four things to focus on in each. How How did you select? Well, the, so I thought it was crucial, and I, well, first of all, thank you to, to everybody who said that. That's very kind, because that definitely was our intention. Um, the the point is that morality, it's not a self-contained sphere uh, where it gives you principles and then you just kind of blindly apply them. So it's not morality tells you uh, that you need the principle of individual rights, and then you can just say, hey, this violates rights. All right, you know, wipe your hands and go home. You've proved your case. The point is that morality is a fundamental integrating look at human life. It's the most, it's in a certain way, the most fundamental perspective you can take on human life. But that means that if you have a moral principle, you're saying, if you act this way, it'll turn out good here, 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 and here. Um, and so, for instance, in the economic realm, that is not something detached from morality. It's how moral principles will play out in action. If people are free, this is what they'll do in a market, and that should, if your morality is hold, upholding human life and prosperity, it should lead to human life, prosperity, flourishing. And so if it didn't, if you had a morality that said we need laissez-faire capitalism, and then all your economics and history said, hey, this is a complete disaster, you'd have to scratch your head and say, well, what are we doing? This, this doesn't make any sense. Morality is supposed to guide us in achieving success. So if you want to be persuasive about people and show them I have a moral case for capitalism, you better lay out your moral principles and then show how they play out in practice. And so we wanted to get, all right, what's the, what's the minimum they need to know in ethics in order to understand and value what goes on in markets and to see how completely immoral and destructive it is for the government to interfere in markets. And so we really thought about it in terms of, we wanted them to see this connection between rational self-interest leading to all the you know, uh, prosperity and happiness under capitalism and then the destruction of self-interest or the restriction of self-interest leading to all sorts of negative consequences in today's mixed economy mm-hmm. um, and also tomorrow's statist economy. So we were really thinking in terms of you know, the, what are the essentials that they need, but there's not. It, it's hard to give an answer other than you know, we tried to really think hard about, is the, have we given enough to make it concrete, um, but not too much that it's going to swamp people's mind. But we definitely erred on the side of being more concrete in this book because the, the, the fact is there is some amazing stuff in the objectivist literature that gives us the essentials for how to think about philosophy and political philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, 
you know, something like um, Dr. Peacock's objectivism, the philosophy of Ayn Rand, that gives you the essentials in, in the most condensed um, form that really help you see the, the entire forest. Uh, but we thought that today what, one of the things that people need is they need somebody to help fill in the trees. The, the, you know, the, uh, objectivists uh, can read Ayn Rand, they can read Dr. Peacock, and, you know, they can do the work to start to see, yeah, these principles actually, they capture what we see in the world, what we experience in our individual lives. But I think the next step that we, we needed was more kind of taking the people who didn't quite get it, who couldn't quite classify the things in reality under these broad abstract principles to start breaking it down in more detail for them. So we did want to, we wanted to provide more concrete um, and, and more more anecdotes, more story level stuff than you'll sometimes see in other objectivist works because our goal was different um, than I think those other projects. It was, it was really to take, you know, the average American, not the, the um, kind of most intellectual, but, you know, the thinkers at, at, uh, all across the, uh, the country and, and try to give them a little bit more of a breakdown so that hopefully they'll be able to take in the ideas easier. Right, and and overall, I liked the use of concretes, of of course, the stories, the anecdotes, like you talk about, and statistics as well. Some of the you know statistics surprised me in terms of, you know, sixty percent of the budget going towards the entitlement state, and uh, by twenty twenty five, that being the big year when all of that entitlement interest is going to overtake everything. You know, so I, I like the fact that you have concrete statistics you don't drown people in them but then again nothing is detached from reality either and then there's footnotes there's plenty of footnotes for those people who want to go ahead and look at these things more and get some more detail so zach in the chat room there are some footnotes in the book you can do some more research but um i noticed that the two contemporary examples that you spent a lot of time talking about were the financial crisis in particular the housing bubble and health care and in fact, when you move on to discussing solutions, there's a whole chapter on healthcare, including a sketch of what the, you know the first steps might be to removing government involvement in healthcare. Can you talk a little bit more about why those issues were chosen to focus on? Sure. I mean, this is, that that is a perfect follow-on from what I was saying before. Um, the the tea parties, for instance, you know, I met a lot of these people, and a lot of them are really good. They have great intentions, but there's what I call the tea party gap. And that is that they have at a very broad level, yes, we need to be concerned with freedom, with the founding fathers, with the declaration, with the constitution. But what does that mean in terms of concrete policy? What does that mean for the Federal Reserve? What does that mean for Social Security? How does being for free enterprise apply to understanding the financial crisis or health care or Social Security or uh, regulation of business? They don't have an answer to that, and that's why you'll so often see them at a very broad level saying good things and then at a very narrow level endorsing some many not-so-good things. And so we wanted to close that gap. We wanted to show how these abstract ideas play out in the concretes. And in our view, the two most important concretes today um, and two of the most complex to understand free market principles uh, is in the financial crisis in healthcare. And for the financial crisis, that was pretty obvious. It was it, particularly when we started writing, was right at the beginning of the financial crisis. Um, it's when it broke onto the front pages that we decided this kind of book needed to exist. 
And so if you're going to say that we need free markets and you don't give people an account of how free markets are not, in fact, responsible for the financial crisis, you're simply going to be written off. So we felt we had to get that just to get started. But even at, it wasn't only polemical. We thought here's a great example of how moral ideas led to a crisis and led to it, um, our misunderstanding of the crisis. So it really it was great. It, it perfectly captured for us the, the problem today, the fact that people's moral views were leading them to endorse anti-capitalist policies. With healthcare. Um, again, this is kind of like the core issue, uh, one of the core issues that's happened in the last four years in terms of moving away from economic freedom or what remains of it in this country. But, uh, but it's also one of the most complex. It's really complex to get at what are the pro cause of the problems in healthcare today and how would a free market solve them? What even would a free market in healthcare be? Uh, you know, people, I mean, even now that we have Obamacare is starting to get implemented, people still think of it as a, basically this is a free market approach, right? Right, Why? right. Well, and, and one because of we have that... private insurance companies and so-called private insurance companies. And so we felt we had to clarify that issue, too, if we wanted to be at all convincing. One of the things that struck me in, in the chapter on healthcare too is, uh, and, and it's true, you said that, Healthcare, because as a science or you know as a, an industry that's implementing science, it's it's fairly recent origin, and so therefore it grew as an industry during a time where we were already implementing a lot of government controls, and so in, in effect, healthcare has never really experienced a free market at all. Whereas at least with other sectors of the economy, you could point to a time in which the market was you know, free or nearly free, you could never even do that with healthcare anyway. So it makes it even harder to understand because we've never truly had a, a free market in healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it, it, there's just a general issue of history is so important and the fact that people haven't gotten educated in history today is such a disaster. Um, I'm, I'm raising my hand. I'm, I'm raising yeah. my hand. I, I, I have such a lack of education. It's disgusting. So go on. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, me too. Um, but the, the the there's such this lack of understanding. But with something like healthcare, it's all the more disastrous because, like you said, the, there never has been that uh, area where free markets were really fully free to work. There were freer eras, and we talk a little bit about you know how that they function better. But see, this is one of the the difficulties in something like capitalism, the the in in convincing people of it. Historically, what we've had is the elements of freedom have led to progress and innovation in the economy and our standard of living and the kind of technology available. While there's been a disintegration of our amount of freedom of the, uh, and a lessening of how far we've advanced from where we would be if those areas were freer. And so the, 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 there's this weird kind of thing where our policy was better in most arenas 100 years ago. But the, the, but the quality, the technological knowledge, the amount of wealth was lower. So, for instance, um, in the era before the entitlement state, to take a different example, mm -hmm. here was people were freer, and yet even, most people were not living as well as they are today. And that's because we would say economic freedom hadn't been, allowed, uh, hadn't been around as long, hadn't been able to make people rich. But so there's this hard thing to explain to people, which is that they associate the low standard of living with the fact that we didn't yet have government interventionist policies. 
Whereas there's a t really what's happening is two trends going in the opposite direction. But it, it, all these things are complex, and so you have to take things like healthcare, and you have to be able to provide a context for people to understand the history and why things look the way they do today. Right. And in terms of helping people to achieve this free market revolution, in terms of them, you know, fixing their understanding of markets in general, and in particular, like you say at the beginning of the book, the understanding of the self-interested pursuit of profit as good, as not evil, right? This, this is essential. We have to do this. What can people who are listening to this show now do to help bring this about? Yeah, so I would say the the first is to understand it, the core, like what needs to change. And what needs to change is people's thinking on these issues. I mean, there's no way around it. I, everywhere I go, I get a question of, you know, what can we do, what besides education? And there's plenty you can do besides education, but at the end of the day, it's change their ideas or it's done. I mean, it's, that's what has to happen. But the, the, so the key thing is to know well, what are the high leverage points? What are the core ideas where if you can move people in a better direction there, you can really achieve rapid change and move them in a much further direction? And so in the book, we lay out that there's what they need to understand is just the core of self-interest, that a genuine self-interest and the way that it shows up in the profit motive is through uh, a person being rational, productive and dealing with others through win-win trade and that this shows up in a market because uh, through the fact that markets lead to prosperity and win-win success for everybody involved in the market. Now, in terms of the specific actions, it's once you have that kind of framework, then the job is to get those ideas out there. And that means there's a whole range of activities. Um, but one of the core ones is find uh, examples where a person's making that case in a way that you regard as effective and pass that literature out. Make sure it's widely distributed. I think the number one thing that uh, objectivists can do is get those ideas read, whether it's my book, whether it is a, an op-ed, whether it is Ayn Rand's books, uh, above all else. You know, get them into the hands of people who you think can be can be responsive because the, there's a lot of great material out there, and that is, that's how the left took over, by massively distributing all of their ideas, and that's how I think we can succeed today. Um, I think the, then if you're really committed to this as a cause and you want to you know, become a professional intellectual, I think you know, there's a lot more to do about understanding the ideas and then learning how to use them to change fields, um, to, as we you know, talked a bit about today. Um, but really the answer is, as Ayn Rand said, speak. Speak out on whatever scale is available to you. Right. And uh, just conveniently, I put the link to the Amazon uh, purchase link for this book, right? This is Free Market Revolution, How Ayn Rand's Ideas Can End Big Government. Don, thank you for discussing this for the full hour with us today. As I suspected, I kept you busy for the entire hour. I really appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate you taking your time to talk with us today. And I hope that people will go out, get the book, decide for themselves that they love the presentation that you give, and pass it along. Thank you, Don. Thank you, Amy. Okay, we'll talk soon. 
Okay, everybody else uh, who's here uh, in the chat room, someone said, how about John Allison as a future guest? I do plan on having him sometime after the middle of October. He's busy taking over the helm at Cato right now. But I really appreciate John taking the time with us today. As I said, go out, get the book, read it for yourself, decide that you think it's good, pass it along. Also, if you enjoy this show, this is one vehicle that I hope is helping uh, educate people into learning about self-interest and learning about its application in all the different uh, areas and politics and in the culture. So spread the word. Thank you. And we will talk soon, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye.